So I'm going to read Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open it up there. Um, It will be on the screens as well if you want to follow along. We'll start in Galatians 3 and verse 1. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, we have a lot to unpack in these 14 verses. I don't know if you caught it, but there was a one argument, but Paul went about 18 different ways within that argument. So as I was studying it this week, um, I started thinking about the argument. Well, it's not really an argument because Paul's an inspired writer of God um, by the Holy Spirit. But Paul's argument, right, goes a lot of different ways. And what's interesting is I was studying it, I noticed that if you actually walk backwards in the text, it starts to make, it starts to make a lot more sense. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk backwards in the text. And I've got four main ideas that I want to share with you from this text. So it's going to start really hard, and then you're going to be really happy at the end, just to warn you, okay? Um, Here's the first one that we see from Paul. We are under the curse of God's law. This is in verse 10. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of law and do them. So the question is that we have to ask is why is Paul saying that those who rely on the works of the law are cursed? What does that even mean? Why is he saying that? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Attempting to follow the law reveals what? That you can't. (laughs) Attempting to follow the law reveals that you cannot follow the law. Our failure to follow the law reveals our sin because you can't be perfect. The law leads to death and leads to us being under the curse of sin, which means that we are guilty before God. We are condemned before God. We are separated from God. And what's our response when we fail so many times? We try to work our way back to God. 
Our response is to try to earn how, like, redeem what we've messed up because the law is to live by works. So I want you to understand the relationship. The law is to live by works. And to live by works is to live by the law. The law says you must, and the law says you must not. And what does living by the law eventually lead to? I think, one, it leads to exhaustion, that you are just tired because you can't measure up. I think it leads to pride, that you look at the things that you do well, and you become prideful about those things. I think it leads to judgment, so that when someone else has an external issue with a law, with works, that they are obviously failing in this area, that you become judgmental towards them. And I think it leads to dissatisfaction with yourself and with God. And ultimately, it leads to eternal separation from God because the law asks you to be perfect. And the curse of sin is that what? You will never be perfect. That means that every thought, every action, every motive has to be perfect. If you want to fulfill the law and remove the curse, you have to be perfect. And if you're not perfect, then you're guilty. Does that sound exhausting? It is. And some of you are there right now. You are so tired because you have trying to earn your standing before God. You've been trying to earn it because here's what, ha- here's what happens. We try to be good. We try to do good works. We try to follow the law, and we mess up. We get angry. We look at something we're not supposed to. We say something we, we're not supposed to. And the remedy we think to that is I just need to go to church or I just need to read my Bible, or I need to do more of this. And so we try to fix the problem, and then what happens? We mess up again. So we try harder to fix the problem, and then what happens? We mess up again, and we're exhausted. We are so tired, and we have this circle that we just kind of living in over and over and over to that, right? Um, I saw this when I was a, a college minister, um, I would have these students come in, and, you know, they're 20-somethings. They're excited uh, about life. They're excited about Jesus. So they would walk in. They would sing and raise their hands, and then uh, they would go to these home groups and these small groups that we had, and they would talk about Jesus. And everything about them genuinely seemed like they are the most excited people that has ever existed in the world about Jesus. But then I would meet with them one-on-one, and they were exhausted. They were tired of performing. They had deep anxiety. They were hurting. People had hurt them, and they hadn't dealt with that. There were so many things happening in their life, and they were living in this circle of just trying to perform for God. And we can do that too, and I know that's true because it's it's true not just with college students but with all of us. We live in this circle of exhaustion. So the question is, what do we do with this? That leads to my second point that we see from Paul here. Breaking that circle starts with one simple truth, that you are treasured by God. You are treasured by God. Listen to what he says in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That Christ came under the cross of God's 
judgment. He covered our guilt. Look at this picture. The storm of God's justice that was aimed at us is covered by the umbrella of God's mercy. And here's what happens. The cross of Jesus Christ made sure that we did not experience one drop of God's wrath. He became a curse for us. He endured our condemnation. What does this mean? Christ redeemed us from the curse. What does it mean to be redeemed? Redeemed was a word that was used in ancient Rome to describe the freeing of slaves. I don't know if you knew that. Um, but these slaves would be auctioned off to people, and the only way that uh, this a slave could be freed was if someone paid a price for them, if someone redeemed them. That was the word that was used to describe their freedom, to purchase freedom, to be redeemed. And I want you to hear that. That is the picture that the Bible uses to describe what happened on the cross. That there was a price. <clears throat> Sorry. There was a price that was paid for you. That your freedom was purchased. What was the price? The price was the life of Jesus. Think about that. You are no longer guilty. You are no longer condemned. You are no longer separated because Jesus suffered that separation for you. The curse has been removed. In that moment in Mark 1534, when Mark tells us, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lemi, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered the separation for us. What? Grace. In a little while, we're singing the song, um, Living Hope. And I love the first, the first verse of that song. It's by Phil Wickham. He says, How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness... Your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. How high, I love that line, how high the mountain I could not climb. And that's the point because what happened, he came down from the mountain and pulled you out of that darkness. He suffered the separation for you, And then if you think about the cross of Christ, after that, for three days, Jesus laid there having endured all of God's wrath and the weight of every sin on him. Death had won. When Jesus laid in the grave, death had won. But then what does the bridge to living hope say? Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. And out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me, then understand this. The moment that Jesus began to breathe in that tomb was a declaration that the curse had been lifted, that we were free, that the, what was previously true about you, that you were separated, condemned, and guilty, was no longer true. The curse that you were under, the, the performance that you could never give to be perfect, someone else did it for you so that you could be in 
Christ, the promise that was given to Abraham that every person on the planet would be blessed could happen because Jesus stood in our place. If you're a visual learner, I put together a really bad slideshow, okay? So we're going to put this first slide <coughs> sorry, excuse me, up on the screen. Can I get some water? Um, and so, okay, this is really bad. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, it's going to get pretty messy up here. Um, it's going to get crazy on screen. Okay, so, but first, um, you see that in Genesis 12, what happens? God comes to Abraham, and he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God aims to bless the nations. He aims to bless the Gentiles. The blessing is that we get to be in community with God, that we would be able to enjoy the presence of God. The problem with that is what? That in order to be in the presence of God, we must be without blemish and without sin, that the laws that God had put in place, we had to keep. And if you could keep all those laws, then you could be in the presence of God. And that's a problem because the law reveals that you can't keep the law. The law reveals your sins. So go to that next slide. So this is what, hap- has what, is what happens. <clears throat> the law has kept us from enjoying the blessings of God, that we can't experience it. Our sin has dictated that we cannot enjoy the beauty and glory of God. It can't happen. We can't be in the presence of God if we have a blemish on us. He's perfect and we're not. Therefore, we can't experience him. The law keeps us from enjoying him. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. But if you go to that next slide, here's what's happened. Here's what we're reading about in verse 13, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ has abolished the law. By taking our punishment for sins, he has made us a way for us to enjoy God. He's made a way for us to enjoy God. Here's what's happened, that when the cross of Christ is present, when he died, when he looks at you, and you would have faith in him, When he looks at you, he doesn't see the law that you haven't kept. He doesn't see that red line. What does he see? He sees Jesus, perfect, spotless sacrifice. So when God looks at you, and I want you to hear this, when God looks at you, he does not see how you've messed up. He does not see the sin that you can carry around with you so easy. But what does he see? He sees a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Savior, who has made you new. And you are forgiven. You are redeemed because the cross of Christ stands in place of the law, and it's gone. So if we go to this next slide, this is what Paul's talking about in verse 14, where he says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might have received the promised spirit through faith. 
Through faith in Christ, we are set free from an enslavement to the law and works. One word of advice I would give here is when you think about faith, always try to remember promise as well. Faith and promise, because to live by faith is to live by promise, and to live by promise is to live by faith. It's the same with law and works. To live by works is to live by law, and to live by law is to live by works. Where the law says you must, and the law says you must not, and the promise, hear this, and the promise, God says, I will. God says, I will. And here's the promise, okay? You will receive the blessing of communion with God because Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, lived a perfect life. He suffered and he died on the cross for our sin, taking the wrath and judgment that we deserved. And here's the question. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe that promise? Because if you do, then you get to live in freedom, not in exhaustion, not in condemnation. You get to enjoy the presence of God. Paul dives a little deeper into this in verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. So what does it mean to have faith like Abraham? There are two things here. First, he shows that saving faith is believing in the gospel promise. Saving faith is believing in the gospel promise. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a reference to Genesis 15, where God has promised Abraham a son. And Abraham is like, I don't see a son. You have not given me a son. And then what does he say in verse 5, Genesis 15? He brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. That God has made Abraham a problem. He says, look at the stars. That's how many children you will have. And it says, Abraham believed the Lord. Notice that it does not say Abraham believed in God. It doesn't say that. Right? It wasn't enough for Abraham just to believe that God existed. Believing in God is not the same as believing in God's promises. Because James 2.19 says that even the demons believe that God exists, but rather he had to believe and trust what God actually said was true. That's the difference between generic general faith and faith. Faith that makes you look at the cross and go, I believe it. <laughs> I believe that he died for me. I believe that the curse is gone. And second, Abraham here shows that saving faith is faith that is in God's provision, not performance. Because we can look at what we can do and what we're capable of and what we're not capable of all the time. And we can do things based on that and think that that's good enough, but that's not good enough. Our performance will never be good enough. But God's provision always will be. That we cannot trust in our own performance rather than trusting in God. It's, it's interesting here. Another word that could be used here in place of counted, and your um, version may say something different, but uh, another word that could be used here is declared or credited. Declared or credited. 
that faith was credited to him as righteousness. To credit means to give something that wasn't previously yours. So when the Bible tells us that God credits Abraham's faith as righteousness, it means that God is treating Abraham as if he is righteous. Even though he has sinned, God is treating him as if he is righteous, that he is perfect. And this is why Paul is so outraged in verse 1. Look at it. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, (laughs) who has bewitched you? (laughs) Think about that language, right? Who has bewitched you? Because what are they doing? They are trying to gain access to something that they already have access to. It makes no sense. They're trying to gain access to the presence of God, but they already have access. For them, believing in the promises, promise of God that his accomplished work on the cross is already complete isn't enough. Instead, they say, well, actually, you need to do one more thing, and then you can enjoy the presence of God. That would be like on the night that I was saved, um, I was at a youth camp, Listen to this pastor give a really cheesy sermon, uh, really cheesy illustration about sailboats. And I was listening to it, and I was like, man, he's talking about Jesus. I don't know anything about Jesus, but I want him. Okay, that was kind of my story. And so I left that worship service, and I walked over to an adult. It would be like if I went to that adult and I said, hey, I don't know what he's talking about, but I I want to be a Christian. I I want to follow Jesus. It would be like if they looked at me and said, that's great, but you need to go memorize the entire Bible first and then come back to me, right? Would that be weird? Yeah, it would be foolish is what it would be. That makes no sense, and that leads to the last point. We are all growing by the power of God's Spirit in us. That growth comes as a result of Growth comes as a result of faith. We don't grow and then have faith. We don't fix ourselves and then come to Christ. You can't. You're cursed under the law. And one argument that someone can make in response to a sermon like this is they can say, well, if my faith in God results in God seeing me as righteous, as in he does not see my sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus covering me, does that then mean that my works don't matter? That it doesn't matter if I read my Bible. It doesn't matter if I go to church. It doesn't matter if I go to home group. It doesn't matter that if I confess and repent of my sins. No. To say that works don't matter is forgetting the other promise of God. That he says in John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So why do we work? Why do we do all these things? Because the Spirit's in you. And it would make no sense for you not to do them. Because his presence is with you right now, stirring your affections, looking at the Bible and going, this is food for my soul. 
going to your community and, and talking about your sin and all the things that are happening and feeling and understanding and experiencing the love of God through the people of God. His spirit is in you. I, I made another messy slide. Um, if we go to that next one. His spirit has consumed you and helps make sense of what really the enjoyment and blessing of God is. That this blessing has come and the spirit goes, here's what that blessing means. That even right now as I'm talking, some of you are bored out of your mind and some of you are on the edge of the seed. And the prayer is that the spirit is helping make sense to you what God is saying in this text. So if any point you've gone, huh, that's interesting, or I never thought about that. Oh, yeah, I remember that God does that. That is the spirit in your heart stirring your affections to go, wow, he is good. He is good. And so growth comes there, right? Growth comes there. Galatians 3, uh, 2 and 3, he says, (laughs) I love this question. He says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? That he's present with you right now, perfecting you. The big word for that is sanctification. It's the process of being made holy. That you're not going to be perfect today, you're not going to be perfect tomorrow. But over time, God will lead you, the Spirit will lead you to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. And you might fall in the middle there. But over time, he is perfecting you and stirring your affections to go, oh, he is good. He is present with me. He does love me. He does have a plan that the Spirit leads you to understand that prayer is food for your soul. Being present with God in in a conversation with him, man, that will help you get through the day. That the people of God love you, and it's a reflection of what God has in the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love each other, and that God has invited us into that. But here, in this moment, the churches in Galatia, they don't get it. They have completely missed it, that they're saying the cross was not sufficient enough. If you'll go to that next slide, here's what they've done. While they have had access to the things, get the next slide up. While they have had access to God and the blessings of God, they have chosen to go and retreat back to the law, where they've said the cross is not sufficient enough. And we could go into all the reasons they might think more. So when you hear that, when you, when you hear that Christ is not sufficient enough, and when we believe that, what we can do is we can tend to run to the works. We can run back to the law. And we can say, well, I just need to read my Bible more. Or I just need to pray more. Or I just need to do more of this. And the enemy will convince you of that. The enemy will convince you that what Christ did was not enough and that you need to perform a little bit more. And you need to justify God saving you. And you may not have thought that outwardly, but I think for me, sometimes I live like that. 
because I know how sinful I am. I'm reminded about how sinful I am in all the places I mess up. And so I begin to try to justify my salvation. Well, here's the news. Christ has already justified it. (laughs) He's already justified it. He's already made you new. Are you relying on the works? Are you relying on works or are you relying on the promises of God? So I've got two questions. One is for us, covenant members of Renewal Church that belong to this church family. Um, and and I, w- I would say it this way. Um, have you been performing? Have you been trying to justify something that has already been given to you? Another way to ask it is, are you just completely exhausted <laughs> trying to earn something that is already yours? And then I would ask this question to the other group in the room. Um, some of you that would say, I'm not a believer. I don't, I don't really understand what you're saying. I'm not a Christian. Um, I would ask this. Do you ever think you'll be perfect enough to be in the presence of God? Do you think you'll ever be perfect enough in order for God to look at you and love you? The answer to that is no. So if you've been waiting, saying, man, look, I'm a complete mess. I'm not like you guys. I've got all these things going on. And you've been trying to earn your way to God. before. You've been trying to fix yourself before you come to Christ. The rest for you is that he has come down from the mountain and he's already given you grace. Through Christ, he has earned your place for you in his presence. And he has loved you. And he wants you to experience what it means to be led by his spirit, for your affections to be stirred, for you to have hope and joy and to be loved. You can't create that place yourself. But he will carry you there. Um, In Galatians 5, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, uh, Paul says, keep in step with the spirit. It's the idea, the picture there is that you're like in a military march keeping in step with the Spirit. And for us as Christians, we can so quickly, um, we can so quickly just listen to the world and be drawn away from the enemy and be tempted to go back to a performance. This is why we need each other. This is why we, you need to be in a community so that you as one another can remind each other what really matters, what Christ has done. Because if you go off in your corner and you try to live this Christian life solo, you'll forget that God has been good and saved you through Christ. And so you need others around you to remind you. That's what Paul's doing. Paul is coming in into this moment and he's going, don't forget this. He has already done it. He has already redeemed you. And so I would encourage you, if you're not in community, that you would be in a group of people that would point you towards Christ. And the flaws that you do have and the flaws that I have, that we wouldn't condemn each other for them, but we would say, look, I love you. I want you to know what the goodness and grace that God has. And we would come alongside of one another and we would fight for each other's faith. And we would fight for each other to remember 
God's promises.